because you got a felony, they don't discriminate against me. I'm still I'm not no bad dude. I just did some bad things, but I'm no bad dude. And it's like, why do you have to constantly keep trying to convince somebody to say, okay, can I just become a productive member of society? Can you give me another chance? I don't know, no, man. But I mean, if, once they learn your past, you know, ooh, he's dangerous, you know. He's been to prison. Groups that I've come up with say that it essentially takes two days to heal up from every single day that you are in prison. And so if we think of it like that, um, then someone who's been in a year, it's going to take them at least two years to transition back into life on the outside. 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 You know. don't think about what it's like to come back from prison. I'm Molly Mulroy, and this is Outside. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a blur, but I was kind of like in the days, um, the whole two to three days, well, two or three days before uh, I was going to be released. Um, because I guess when you first go into, when you're first incarcerated, um, particularly for me, it, it seemed so surreal, like I was in a dream, like this isn't real, okay? And then... <laughs> You know, once you're incarcerated for a certain period of time, it almost seems like the world before, the outside world, wasn't real. You know, so um, just um, the anticipation of it, the days slow down so, so much when you get close to that day. And actually, the first thing I ate was raisin canes. I don't know. <laughs> so that, was, that was weird, but... Um, you know, we had a, we had a, uh, a little party at, at my house. Uh, all my family and friends uh, were able to come and see me, and um, it, it was a great day. It was a great day, um, but day I'll never forget. Just like the day I'll never forget when I was when I was actually incarcerated. Imagine that, after 20 years, coming home to your mom's house, all your family and friends there hugging you, asking you how you're doing, and eating raisin canes. After 20 years, imagine the mix of emotions that must come with that. Imagine the whiplash involved. Nelson called leaving prison almost bittersweet. Bittersweet? How could that be? When you're sent to prison, you're ripped away from your family and you have to go through this grieving process and then you're placed in prison and you get a new family and you're so close and then when you're released, you're ripped away from that family. So you got to grieve them because when you're released, you're not supposed to communicate with them anymore. Huh. So the people that you have just counted on and relied on for the past how many other years, your contact is just cut off. So the experience of being incarcerated too is also very, very isolated. And then you're thrown back into this family. You know they love you because this is your family, but you don't know each other. 
So Sarita said that you're not allowed to contact your friends inside that family and support system that you've created once you're released. That really caught my attention. After years of only being able to rely on those people, people going through the same thing as you, you're not allowed to go back and encourage them? You're not allowed to go back and share your success story, telling them how they too can make it? Well, no. You're not even allowed to write to them. Kisha Kalix, the probation officer I spoke with, mentioned a similar situation. When it comes to juveniles that are on probation and they're not supposed to associate with other people on probation, yeah, it's, it's immediate. And, um, and if they're found violating one of the conditions of their probation, such as staying away from negative peers or others on probation, then they're violating the conditions of their probation, and their probation officer can notify the court by filing a motion of contempt. And you can still love them, and you may not see them every day, um, but you have to think of your own best interest at that minute. And, and we really are just trying to help the youth reach their full potential. I was pretty floored by this. Now that I've had time to reflect, I guess I can sort of see the argument. It's the idea of not getting mixed up with the wrong crowd once you come back home. But what if that wrong crowd lives with you? Is your cousin or your stepmother? Or even just your best friend? Someone who's stuck by you through everything and wants to help make your transition back home easier. Victor Rios, a sociologist and author of the book Punished, Policing the Lives of Black and Latino Boys, said that, in his experience, quote, probation was successful at forcing young people to discuss personal responsibility and reflect on their own actions, but it completely failed at providing young men the resources necessary for desisting from crime. The criminalization process was already in motion, leading probation officers to overlook this desire to change and instead to focus on minor transgressions, such as violating curfew or hanging out with known gang members, many of whom were family or next-door neighbors, end quote. Professor Armstrong of Loyola University New Orleans Law School, who I mentioned in the last episode, explained it like this. Um, and the idea is if you go out to hanging around with the people that you were hanging around with or who were trouble people, then that I, the, the, the taint, the criminal taint for, will jump from one person to the next and somehow infect a person who has been cleaned through their incarceration, right? I mean, I hope you hear the sarcasm that's inherent in this idea. And I think that, I think that's one of the underlying ideas on why we say you can't have contact, you can't go back in um, to see folks, um, is because of this idea that you've gone through the system, you're now cleaned of your sin, and you know any further contact is gonna bring you back down the line. That might sound extreme, but that is the logic behind it. We have this system that's meant to fix people who do wrong, to correct them. So of course this system isn't going to want people who come home hanging around with those who have not yet been corrected. And sometimes people who come home from prison or jail don't want to hang out in their old haunts with their old friends anyway. In the past, when I've worked with formerly incarcerated people, they often stress this. People told me they didn't even want the temptation of giving in to peer pressure or getting roped into something that may have sent them to prison in the first place. And that's their choice. But it seems to me 
that hanging out with old friends who might still be involved in criminal activity is vastly different than going back to prison to visit your friends inside. As Sarita mentioned in the last episode, an example of someone who has made it outside can have a huge impact on someone still waiting to be released. And it would be some people that you're like, oh my God, I know when they get out, they'll make it. And then like 30 days later, they're back. Mm -hmm. And you're like, damn, if they couldn't do it, how am I going to do it? So imagine if someone saw their friend out and successful and avoiding returning to prison. Shouldn't they be allowed to go visit their old friends inside and provide support and inspiration? Not to mention, just as Professor Armstrong stressed, this type of dirty, clean thinking can be dangerous. It generates a sort of us-versus-them mentality. We are the law-abiding citizens, and they, the dirty ones, make our world unsafe. When, in reality, anyone has the capacity to commit a crime. I saw um, an amazing exhibit in um, Philadelphia, and I think it's traveling around, and the idea is we are all criminals. And so you go into this first room and you're, you're asked, have you ever committed an illegal act, right? And the, the museum is full and pretty much everybody went left towards yes, right? And then there's a series of stops where it asks you questions about your income, about your education level, mm -hmm. about um, where you grew up, what type of household you had. And finally, you get to this point where it says, yes, you are a criminal too, but you likely don't have a criminal record because of all of these factors, right? I think Professor Armstrong and this exhibit she saw make a really compelling case. Labeling someone who commits a crime a criminal or someone who comes home from prison an ex-con is overzealous. And it builds up an animosity and a prejudice that can have an effect on someone's life every single day. Like with Nelson, I asked everyone about their release. Terrence talked about the bus ride, how he had to take three different greyhounds to get back home. You heard him talk about that in episode one. And Eastwood gave me an entire chronology. I was escorted to the halfway house on the day of my release, uh, which is the federal halfway house. See, I, don't, I didn't go to the state because I was a federal prisoner. So I, uh, I went to the halfway house and, you know, they taught, told me the rules and everything, what I had to abide by and everything. So I did that. I was released uh, six months later. Uh, and uh, after that, I got married to a lady I met, and uh, we got married, and we lived. We've been living together ever since. You know? But Sarita, Sarita talked about business. Before I went to prison, there was no internet, um, no Google, you know, and then have to get out, and everything is um, on the computer, and you go to like workforce or one of these places, and they're like, okay, go on the computer and fill out the job application. And I'm looking at them like, I don't want to tell them that I don't know what to do. Hmm. So they have people in those positions who aren't sensitive to what the people that are really. She brings up a good point about readjustment. There are all sorts of things you have to get used to when you go to prison. And then there are all sorts of things you have to get used to when you come back, too. And she gave me some examples. 
that you want to close every door you go into, you know, or um, you still fold your clothes really, really small because you're used to living in a little small locker. A man I visited in prison one time later told me, once he came home, all the different things he had missed. Walking barefoot. Grilling vegetables. Opening doors without asking someone for permission. Putting spicy mustard on his sandwiches. Terrence wholeheartedly agreed with that one. And spending time with his family. Not surprisingly, everyone I interviewed for this podcast talked a lot about family what it was like to leave them, what it was like when they visited, what it was like to come home. Here's Nelson again talking about his release. Actually, my father didn't come until <laughs> the next day. And um, that's when I let it all out. You know, I, I, I sobbed like a baby when I saw my father. Um, nobody else saw that because um, he, he came to the house actually the next day. I met him outside. I didn't. I didn't do any crying or anything like that in front of my mom or anything like that. But when my dad came, you know, just like almost 20 years of you know relief and frustration and hopes and everything, I just let it all out. You know, and so that felt real, real good. Nelson has said to me several times that he was very lucky, even with the offense he committed, being tried as an adult at age 16, and the time he served. He still feels lucky. Um, when you have a 16-year-old uh, who's never had any type of dealings with the law or the criminal justice system, mm -hmm. uh, who is labeled as a sex offender, uh, and you send him to um, Louisiana State Penitentiary, um, it was a potential for a disaster for me. Uh, but. Nevertheless, um, like I said, I was, I was lucky on all fronts. His family was able to visit him while he was incarcerated, although a warden can have discretion as to whether these visits allow physical contact, depending on the offense. But some incarcerated people, like those in solitary confinement, or those being held in a supermax prison, which are built to hold the quote-unquote worst of the worst, are never allowed to have physical contact during visits. And some families don't have the means to visit their friends or relatives in prison, especially if the person is being held far away from where they grew up, which Terrence said is happening more and more often in Orleans Parish. And the American Civil Liberties Union reports that companies like Global Tellink charge up to $17 for a 15-minute phone call between an incarcerated person and someone on the outside, even if the incarcerated person only makes two cents an hour doing labor, like Nelson did when he worked in the fields in Angola. So, for some families, that welcome home party is the first time they're seeing their son, or sister, or mother, or uncle since their incarceration. But Sarita agrees that even visitation while in prison isn't really a very therapeutic time with the family. Everything like visitation in prison is superficial. Because you don't want to talk about anything too heavy, right? You only got so many hours. So you're talking about the weather, you're talking about football, you know, you're talking about happy things. You're not talking about anything too dulling and depressing. Like, I can't go to my mom and say, hey, you know, um, the other day I just got dragged out of my fucking room and pepper sprayed. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to tell that to them in visitation. Mm -hmm. Or they're not going to tell me how hard it is for them to be without me. 
Sarita says that when she was released from prison, she stayed in a halfway house for a while. After a few months, she moved back in with her mother, which was more stressful than she thought it would be. She only stayed for the summer. Because it's, it's hard, like, my mom still thought I was 19 and I was 30. Mm-hmm. You know, and the questions and things, she was like, make sure you're not doing this, and are you going here, and what is... And I'm like, Mom, I haven't did that in like 10 years. What are you talking about? You know, but I mean, it's hard on everybody. Sarita's right. It can be hard as the child, coming back after you've grown up in prison, or coming back as the parent, seeing your children after years and years, or meeting your grandkids for the first time. Or as someone in an advisory capacity, like an older sibling or a role model. Terrence has little siblings, and he said that he'll talk to them about his experiences when they get older. With one of the siblings, he said, he's already had to start talking to her about it. Oh, you tell her, oh, you did this. Not the life you want to live. You got to stop. Whatever you're doing, stop doing it. Mm-hmm. Because you get caught up in the people's system. Now, you lose your name, you will be a number. Mm-hmm. Like, you lose your name, you will be a number. You know, you can't sleep when you want. You can't eat when you want. It's just, there's no freedom. You don't want that. Because my neighbors and everybody on my mom's street, they know me and know the type of heart I have. So they really don't look at me no different. It's like they are our family. They turn the phones on too. So we be calling all the old people and talking to us and getting on us and going off on us by logging in jail. So it's like a big support system. Yeah, but after a while you I'm going off on me. I'm in here now, okay? I understand. (laughs) I understand. As Terrence explained, it's not just your family that you see when you come home. Old friends, neighbors, former teachers, all manner of people throughout your life may be excited to see you when you come home. On the flip side of that, of course, as I mentioned earlier, are those people who are not excited to see you come home. Those who think that you might be a bad influence, or people who don't want to live next to you where that us-versus-them mentality comes in. I grew up in this area, from the project over here. But where I live at right now, I live in the, in the, uh, around the east. Mm. Uh, the people don't know me, and I don't know them. And that's good. Because you ain't got to worry about them uh, being scared of you and all that, you know? So people don't know about your history? No, they don't know me. But I mean, if, once they learn your past, you know, oh, he's dangerous, you know. He's been to prison, you know, and they get frightful for nothing. So on top of everything else you have to deal with when you come home from prison, the stigma of being one of them, of having that criminal taint, of being different, can follow you throughout your life post-incarceration. And it can have lasting effects on your employment, and your education, as we'll see next time on Outside. Outside is brought to you by Nisha Call Productions. My editorial advisor is Dr. Laura Murphy, and the theme song was composed by Daniel Bourgeois and Michael Kincannon. Mm-hmm.